It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. If you're on Facebook, then there's a company you've probably never heard of that makes it bearable. Accenture. The little-known consulting firm is one of the biggest companies in the booming market of content moderation. But you'll probably never hear its name come out of the mouths of Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg. Now, when it comes to the world's largest social media site, you either love it or you hate it. But chances are you don't want to see video of a dog being skinned alive while you're checking in on people from high school. That's where Accenture comes in. AI gets rid of a lot of these kinds of videos, but sometimes a human needs to make a call. The psychic cost of doing that work is devastating, but it's worth a lot of money to Facebook. Here to help us understand the bizarrely secret world of Facebook's content moderation is Mike Isaac of the New York Times. Isaac is a best-selling author who just co-wrote a story all about this titled The Silent Partner Cleaning Up Facebook for $500 million a Year. I'm Matthew Gall, and this is Cyber. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So my first question is, do you use Facebook and what do you use it for? <laughs> uh, I do use Facebook. I'm, uh, I've am i been reporting on the company for, gosh, about 11 years now, I, I guess it is. So part of it um, is for my job, I guess I would say, just to understand how it works. But I think I, like most people, started using it in um, in its earlier days because I thought it was a cool thing. And um, social networking was fairly novel back in the early days when I was in college, basically, uh, when it started. And uh, so there was this arc for me from this is cool to this is <laughs> this is slowly becoming a behemoth that needs to be watched and sort of scrutinized. And I think I'm in that latter portion of uh, of my use of Facebook at this point. What is Accenture and how does it make Facebook work, essentially? Yeah, so Accenture is this, uh, you know, again, it's this thing that most people probably have not really heard of unless you're in the kind of corporate world and and require some of their contract services. It's actually historically known as kind of a conglomerate company that does a lot of really boring back-end stuff like accounting services and software, um, just sort of like the the uh, run-of-the-mill duties that make businesses work that you might not want to handle yourself. Contracting out to them can kind of deal with maybe HR things or accounting issues that a business might not want to do or can't afford to hire someone that's dedicated to it. So, they have historically been that as a company. And then a few years back, essentially stumbled into uh, a market that no one really knew was going to be as big as it has become today. So, you know, back in 2016, really a little bit earlier, but back in 2016, this sort of explosion of uh, a need for content moderators, people who watch the gnarly, the good, the bad, the ugly things that cross Facebook, that cross YouTube, that cross Twitter, all of the big companies really needed more people to review this stuff because, you know, 2016, the election kind of blows up this idea that social networks are being used for far more ill than we could have suspected. You know, it's more than just your your insane uncle complaining about politics on Facebook. It is 
your insane GRU operative uh, manipulating, you know, the strings of politics and and as a puppet inside of Facebook. So, you know, 2016, really earlier, but by 2016, it was becoming a booming industry where companies like Accenture contract out these thousands of people to review manually each piece of content that is flagged across YouTube, Twitter, and really Facebook is the big one that is flagged for review. And it's basically the worst of the internet is what I would say. And, you know, that has quickly become a multi, you know, multi-billion dollar business at this point, basically. I just want to highlight something real quick, because I think that there's there's this misconception among some people, many of them on Facebook, that content moderation is censorship and, you know, people are being zucked or put in Facebook jail for saying, you know, stepping out of political line and like... That's kind of a separate argument, I think, than what we're talking about here. Like, we are talking about Syrian war criminals uploading footage of their kills, um, drug cartels doing horrible things, sociopaths uploading the worst of the worst. There is no system of moderation here. Facebook would look a lot like Rotten.com and no one would be on it. 100%. I think, like, something akin to, like, 4chan, but with everyone's identities or at least, you know some semblance of everyone's identities. And, and you know, you're totally right in that um, censorship is always sort of a hot button issue. But any mainstream social network uh, that you use, and even not mainstream social networks that you use, have some sort of content moderation system built into it. Uh, it's just that um, uh, people don't sort of you don't really see it because you're not seeing these awful videos being surfaced all the time. So you don't really know what you're missing out on. But absolutely, it's a very different thing from we're going to suppress multiplicity of viewpoints. It's more like we're going to suppress like very unpleasant stuff that that is against the terms of service of the platform, basically, and that most people probably don't want to see. All right. So it strikes me that this should be a core concern for Facebook, and it certainly seems like it is. But then why do they outsource it? Why separate themselves and contract it out in this way? Sure, I think there's a, it's a good question. There's a number of reasons they do this. One is sort of an economic incentive, right? They don't want to hire thousands of people as full-time Facebook employees to do what they consider a very menial, almost unskilled task uh, at scale. It takes a lot of people to do this work, and I mean, I think that's, I think many people would also dispute that characterization. There's a lot of policies to sort of sift through to even understand what things break the rules and what don't. Um, the policies change frequently. But, you know, Facebook wants to hire highly skilled, highly valuable engineers as full-time employees and maintain its sort of corporate culture while sort of offloading this specific task that it doesn't like sort of value in the same to the same degree that it does the employees who work inside of Facebook full time uh, to these other companies. I think also if you have sort of giant workforces of contract labor, you are able to do things much easier, namely hiring them and firing them or letting them go at will or moving them onto different projects much easier than you would if they were full time employees under Facebook. So. Uh, I have a few sources I talk to who are getting shuffled out of one office because they're winding down a specific project they're working on, spinning some up in a different office, but also you have to like sort of reapply to get that contract job. So it's a kind of like 
multiplicity of pretty con- controversial issues where, where it's like workers' rights, keeping costs low, far cheaper for Facebook to do this, to offload it. And like keeping keeping a lot of this at arm's length for them is generally a good thing, I think, for themselves. Like they don't necessarily have to sort of mire themselves in the worst of what the planet has to offer all day, you know, because being sort of, you know, arms deep in that muck would probably influence their views in really different ways. So I think I think they have a lot of incentives to keep this away from them and keep this from like tarnishing their brand in some ways that um that they wouldn't otherwise be able to if it were all in in-house folks basically. And can we talk a little bit more about, you know, I know the Verge has reported on this and Vice has interviewed someone that worked in one of these shops, but I I, I want to highlight real quick like what is the human cost of this work? What is it like to be someone that stares at this kind of stuff all day long. Yeah, I mean, this is a really important topic, I think. And I think it's also a topic that doesn't really have great answers all all across the board, because I do think this is very draining on people who do the job. Everyone who's been interviewed has said they walk away with PTSD issues, you know, staring at like literally some of the worst stuff the world has to offer for eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, for however long you have this job, it's, it affects you. It pro- it changes your worldview. It changes like how you sort of operate. And a lot of the folks I've talked to have just had really difficult times and have had to visit like on staff counselors who feel like they don't have their best interests in mind and more like sort of damage protection for the companies rather than actually people who are willing to help them. So it's very it's very harmful stuff, very damaging to people's psyches. I think the counter argument would be someone has to do this work if we want these networks to exist. Um, and if you don't want it to be sort of crowded with a lot of this really awful material, you know, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think the long-term view, the thing that Zuckerberg keeps saying is that AI is going to eventually be doing the large amount of work here. But I still think that AI is a very long way off from even coming anywhere close to how human sort of cognition and discretion is is going to be able to handle a lot of this stuff. So it seems like kicking the can down the road perpetually until they get to some automated solution that seems pretty far off. A lot of tech companies these days just kicking that can down the road until the automated solution finally kicks in. <laughs> I feel like... Uh... The way we talk about AI is the way that people talked about nuclear in the late 40s and early 50s, where they think it's going to solve all these problems and it's going to end up actually having these very narrow uh, things that it can do. But that's a whole other podcast. I totally agree with you, by the way. I would come back to talk about how how AI is sort of like a cure-all that seems kind of like a snake oil at this point. But yeah, again, that's for another day. (laughs) All right. So another thing that the my rowdier Facebook friends complain about is uh, that the rules are always changing and it's, they're not quite sure what they're supposed to do. And this is something that the people who do the content moderation are also have to face, right? hundred percent. This is the difficulty of being the adjudicator and having all this stuff play out in real time. Like there are situations that you can be writing policy all day, trying to sort of come up with rule books for how people can use the internet, but there's always going to be people sort of gaming the system, playing the rules off of it, um, off of itself to like sort of get gnarly stuff that might technically still be allowed inside of the network. So I think the, 
I think by nature, the rules are going to be changing. But at the same time, it's hard. It's really difficult for people who are, whose entire job is to sort of learn these rule sets and apply them to content that's coming at them faster and faster and the fact that they're graded on how fast they do that. You know, when those rules are constantly changing, thousands of mistakes are going to be made. And that's just sort of like how the game is played at scale, I think. I think Facebook also knows this and kind of accepts this because it's like a sort of numbers game to them and some level of mistakes are acceptable. I mean, they think in terms of scale and and I think they say, you know, that we're willing to have this level of mistakes because the vast majority of the decisions are going to be correct and that's good enough for us. But when you're playing at Facebook scale, even 1% is an enormous number, right? And when we find those sort of those errors in that very large 1% number, it's easy to sort of look at them and be like, Jesus, this is this is crazy. This is already like so messed up. How does this keep happening? So I think it's it's gonna continue being a constantly moving target for people who apply the rules as well as people who are supposed to abide by them. And I don't know. I can't see that really changing because this is how the world evolves too, you know, it's sort of playing out in real time. This is a huge business too, right? And it's growing. Yeah. How much do we think Accenture is making? So the last numbers we had internally were 500 million, but we've heard since our story came out that that number is actually much bigger, probably over a billion at this point. Um, uh, annually. So the, you know, the run rate of the revenue that they had coming in from this has just gone up and to the right, basically for the years since they've been involved in this contract. Um, Facebook contracts a number of different companies to do this work, a handful, I want to say probably a dozen, uh, based on the different areas of the world that those contractors are in. You know, there are people in Ireland, in Singapore, in the U.S., like uh, all sorts of different countries because they need to account for different languages and different content in different areas. But Accenture, we found, was far and away, if not the biggest, one of the biggest sort of providers of these services. And what we also found in our reporting is they even, the company, executives at the company question, do we want to be in this business, this very dirty business, this very sort of like morally questionable activity that has they positioned it. And the CEO that came in essentially was like, yes, this is a growth area for us, one of our biggest growth areas, and we're going to double down on it and sort of like continue to stay the course. So there were misgivings at the very top of Accenture on whether or not they should pursue this. But ultimately, they, to your point, the bottom line says they should continue going all in. All right. But to that point, they had this recent SEC filing that lists content moderation as a risk factor for them. Why would they put that in there? Sure. Well, I think the it goes back to our thoughts on AI, which is, you know, F Facebook has made it very clear they don't want content moderation contracting to be a forever thing. They want to eventually make these people's jobs obsolete, which is another whole discussion. But like they, you know, um, it's funny. Facebook has struggled with AI versus humans doing certain jobs for m most of the past five to seven years um, in different sort of iterations of products. 
And so uh, Accenture realizes this. Accenture realizes Facebook eventually wants to train AI to become good as human moderators can do this. And so in their SEC filing, essentially, it says, you know, this is a booming business for us right now. It may go away at some point and investors shouldn't sort of invest in the company or buy stock in the company based on this sort of growth. That said, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I think that it continues to be a growth area and that's that disclosure is sort of um, a risk factor, but further down the line than, than most people might think. Mike Isaac of the New York Times, thank you for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This was fun. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back, everyone. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cypher. It's that wonderful part of Cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. With me today is Motherboard Editor-in-Chief, Jason Keebler. Sir, how are you doing? It's Kebler. How do you not know after all these years? It's Kebler. Is it really? I thought... Yeah. I, oh, my God. I'm an asshole. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I'm so sorry. Um, Let me... All right. Well, I'm going to read you that from the top. No, I, no. Wow. It's good. Leave it in. Leave it in. You want to leave the, the, You want to leave this in? Wow. The, the world okay. needs to know. I, the world <laughs> also needs to know that uh, I've spent the last, like, two days and many hours today fiddling with a new audio mixer device that I've gotten, um, which is going to lead to some changes in cyber, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, but for the meantime, I can hit all sorts of buttons and do crazy shit like this. Yeah. And this is what I, happens can play, I can play our music. I can do all sorts of things. So exciting things are happening soon. Hey, well, the next time I hit, I, I say someone's name wrong, I'm just going to have Sam, our producer, hit the air horn blast and shame me in the moment. Exactly. Yeah, just and like eventually, that. eventually I'll get it down. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it's like, um, um, it's training. Yeah. Some sort of psychological yeah. training. It's like a shock collar, really. But for streamers, it's all shame based. Everything has to be shame based. So you just, yeah, hit me with that air horn blast. Oh, I will never forget this moment. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so the first story I want to talk about is hot off the presses. You just published it like an hour ago. Um, Facebook spending 50 million researching how to not ruin metaverse like it ruined the real world. Uh, what's going on here? Facebook is completely obsessed with this idea of the metaverse, which is basically a virtual reality place where we uh, go to leave the regular earth behind. 
And so Mark Zuckerberg has said multiple times that he believes soon we'll all be living in the metaverse. I think that anyone familiar with science fiction and probably most people who have listened to this show like broadly know what the metaverse is. But it's basically like Second Life or similar to uh, the world that's in Ready Player One, where you have the meat space, which is where us heathens live, uh, where we need to eat our food and you know, go to the bathroom and things like this. And then you have the metaverse where you can be an avatar and you do, you work and play and have sex and hang out in a virtual reality world. I think Facebook has become obsessed with this idea in part because it's running out of people to put onto Facebook. It's like Facebook has something like 3 billion monthly active users. It's like it has become the internet in a lot of parts of the world. Um, it's kind of like losing active users in the core Facebook product uh, in the United States, but it's still very popular in the developing world. And obviously it owns Instagram, which is massive. Um, Facebook purchased Oculus, the virtual reality company, a few years ago. And since then, it has been trying to make virtual reality a thing. Uh, it has kind of failed at this, I would say, because uh, virtual reality is obviously, you know, some gamers use it and there are some interesting uses of it, but it has not uh, achieved mainstream adoption. And so you basically have uh, this huge Facebook purchase of Oculus and we've been inside for 18 months uh, to varying degrees due to a pandemic that has prevented us from visiting each other in real life. And still virtual reality is not really a thing. Um, so that sort of sets the stage for this blog post that Facebook put out, which is that they are going to spend $50 million over the next two years uh, on the quote unquote uh, responsible development of the metaverse, which is just to say that they do not want to replicate the problems of the internet on the metaverse, which is just broadly speaking, the internet, like there's nothing different about it other than there's a visual representation of it and you like go there. But they're basically throwing a bunch of money at researchers and civil society groups and stuff like this to research things like uh, harassment and um, safety on the metaverse and economic opportunity on the metaverse and like all this crap. Yeah, I think it's really the stuff you said kind of about um, them pushing this really hard is kind of fascinating to me because I think the cheapest entry point at the, at right now is a $300 headset that they sell, one of the Oculus Quests, but you still, people don't want to use it because you still have to sign into Facebook to use it. There's been a bunch of problems. You can get VR, like an approximation of VR with something like Google Cardboard, which is just holding mm -hmm. your smartphone up in inside a piece of cardboard and you kind of look at you know the there's basically like two images one for each eye and in, in virtual reality and they kind of meld together and it's like it's kind of cool and i've done it a few times and you basically want to spend like 30 seconds to a minute there before you get a headache or before you're like okay i get the gimmick and i want to move on yeah absolutely and like i like vr i have a vr headset but i don't want to be in there for very long and it is, it does feel very gimmicky right now. Just like a couple of weeks ago, Facebook announced, I think it's called Facebook Workspaces or, or something like this. And it's basically like a VR representation of the office where it's like, oh, we're going to enable remote work and all this sort of thing. And, you know, 
people who are into VR have said it's going to change everything and we're going to do all this new stuff. But it's like Facebook's version of it is very similar to things that already exist. And it's also like you are creating this alternative reality, this metaverse where you can go anywhere and do anything and be anyone and do anything. And it's like, they just created a regular office. Like the avatars in it, like Mark Zuckerberg looks like Mark Zuckerberg, only like a Sims version of him. And they're in the demo, the big demo that they did. They're basically just like sitting in a boardroom talking to each other at a table. And I just fail to see like what the advantage of that is compared to zoom or compared to really anything that everyone does all day, every day, um, living online and kind of talking to people through a mixture of text and audio and video. Um, I don't know. I just don't see it. I agree. You're strapping a headset on that, that kind of weighs you down and can give you a headache and makes some people nauseous, exactly. but, but let's, let's move on to another story we published just today. Uh, how Tesla's self-driving beta testers protect the company from critics. You know, last week I was seeing a lot of videos of Tesla's uh, self-driving cars kind of screwing up. And this is a little bit about that. What's going on here, Jason? Yeah. Do you, do you want to set the scene for the, this kind of like monorail video? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Why don't you set the scene for the monorail video? I think you know this better. You know this better than I do. Yeah. So this was written by Aaron Gordon, who's fantastic transportation reporter. Basically, um, you know, there's all these different types of driverless cars in the United States. There's like Waymo, which is Google's version. And they've actually removed the steering wheel entirely and removed um, like people from it. So it's, it's kind of the only true driverless experience. Um, but, and Waymo has had some problems, but for the most part, they have like a lot of safety precautions involved. Um, and there's like professional people who work for Waymo who are monitoring it at any given time. There's also, you know, Uber experimented with self-driving cars. They've since shut that down, but basically there's all these companies that have tried self-driving cars. And in every instance, except for Waymo, there's been a person in the car kind of monitoring it to see if, if something goes wrong. Um, with Tesla, you know, there's Tesla uses different technology for its self-driving car, um, program. Like it uses a bunch of cameras instead of LIDAR and cameras are a lot cheaper to, to implement. And so Tesla's kind of trying to bring self-driving cars to the masses and basically you can kind of turn self-driving mode on in an existing Tesla. Like you don't need to add a bunch of crap to it. Like you can just kind of do it because if you paid $10,000 when you first bought your Tesla, it came with all the cameras and it's just a matter of like improving the software. And so Tesla for the last like year or so has been uh, doing what it's calling beta tests of full self-driving, which is a misnomer because self-driving is, it goes in levels. So like level one is, I believe, um, assisted cruise control where it will like keep you in the lane. Um, full self-driving is basically like level five where you don't need a driver whatsoever and it never screws up ever. Tesla's full self-driving beta, which is what it's calling it, is level two autonomous driving, which is I actually don't know this the exact specifics of, of what it can and cannot do, but basically it's like it can do most driving on like the highway and in like in a city situation, but it, it will require driver intervention at some point. 
And so as it's rolled out these beta tests, uh, it's given access to people who are essentially like nice to Tesla online. Like you have all of these Tesla specific websites and forums where people talk about their Teslas and how great they are and vloggers and things like this. And so it was an invite only program where Tesla let you turn full self-driving on. And in order to do so, we learned that uh, they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And as part of this non-disclosure agreement, Tesla basically said, there are people out there who want to see Tesla fail, which is a very common talking point for Elon Musk. He's kind of said, you know, there's like all these short sellers and like big fossil fuel and just like the haters out there who want to see us fail. Um, And so they're saying, you know, be very careful about the types of videos that you upload. And what that means basically is like, if the Tesla makes a mistake, please don't upload video of that because the press will jump on it. The haters will jump on it. The short sellers will jump on it and it will make us look bad and, and so on and so forth. Uh, basically what happened was last week, someone uploaded a video in Seattle where, uh, like a Tesla self-driving car was trying to manipulate itself around this like monorail situation in, in Seattle. And it was making mistake after mistake after mistake. It was like getting stuck. It was basically doing like very dangerous things. And so clips of this video went viral. And that's kind of like how we learned about the non-disclosure agreement and stuff like this. Cause we were, we wrote about that and then got tips and spoke to people. And basically it's like, you know, as Aaron argues very persuasively, it's like, it's a beta test for the people who own Tesla's, but it's also a beta test on public roads where you have this technology that's both not proven and doesn't have very good oversight because it's just like random people who own Tesla's driving it. And we know that the, like the national highway transportation safety administration, I believe I got that right. The NHTSA isn't like releasing data about how effective Tesla's self-driving capabilities are. We don't know if it's gotten into any accidents. We don't know if it's like recognizing bikers or pedestrians or so on and so forth. And and I mean, there was an example a few weeks ago of a Tesla seeing the moon, like a, the full moon and thinking that it was a yellow or red light and just like stopping in the middle of the highway. And that's like, that's not the kind of thing that you want to see. No, no, it's not. Not with, not with a car that, you know, can kill people. Uh, quite easily. And yeah, it just seems incredibly dangerous to be beta testing this in the open road with just random Tesla owners. It's pretty wild to me. Yeah. There's a lot Um, of Teslas in the neighborhood that I live in. And, you know, for the most part, like I think people are mostly driving them around themselves, but like when I'm biking or walking, there's always, I always have this like split second of thought where I'm like, Oh, like, are they paying attention? Is it on autopilot? Is it on full self-driving? And as a pedestrian, it kind of makes you nervous. And then at the same time, I've driven in a Tesla before and like the safety capabilities work pretty well. Most of the time, like I've only driven in a Tesla once, but, um, it does things like stop you automatically before you hit someone. And like, that is a safety capability that I don't have on my car. Like, that's a pretty nice thing. I think the issue comes when people think that these safety capabilities can be overextended and be used as like a complete fail safe. Like 
oh, I don't need to pay attention. The car is driving itself. Like I'm going to read a book, which has happened before. Right. They were reading uh, Harry Potter and they ran into a truck, right? If I recall correctly, the details of that one. Something um, like that. And then there's also been people who just literally sit in the backseat of the car and let the Tesla drive itself and have been arrested for yeah. doing so. All right, let's move on very quickly. We've got one more to uh, talk about here. Uh, one that I wrote last week. Leaked Apple training videos show how it undermines third-party repair. Uh, Jason, as the person who kind of got me into this beat and taught me everything I need to know about right to repair, what is the story here? You're the, you're the writer. You tell us. You tell us. I'm passing the torch. You're going to pass the torch on this one? Okay, yeah. so... Um, Apple maintains a repair monopoly, essentially, right? It uh, kind of has a lot of say over how its devices get repaired and who repairs them. As part of this, it, it runs two different programs uh, through independent, quote-unquote, repair stores. If you sign up as an indie repair store, you can get access to certain tools and uh, a documentation that will help you repair stuff for your customers. So if someone comes in with a broken, uh, broken screen on their iPhone, if you are part of you know, app, one of Apple's uh, repair associates, you should ostensibly be able to help that customer. Now, there's different levels of being involved in this. Uh, different stores can only do certain repairs, and there's certain things that only Apple can do because it has stuff software locked, and there's calibration tools that those stores don't have. So what Motherboard uh, acquired and was able to view is some recently filmed training videos about how Apple talks to its third-party repair stores. We know because of the copyrights that are on them that they were filmed in 2021. um, And they are also all filmed uh, with masks and people separated six feet apart. Uh, when they're doing the role play interactions between customers and uh, repair associates. So why the videos are interesting is because of the way that Apple is training these people to talk to customers. So it kind of has the classic example of a person comes in with a phone, says, hey, the screen is broken, I need it replaced, but I'd like to get a quote on how much it's going to cost. Repair technician says, well, it's going to cost this much. The customer says, whoa, that's an incredible amount of money. You know, I can go down the street and get it replaced much cheaper. And the repair tech says, well, yeah, you could do that, but it's not an official Apple repair and kind of runs down uh, the reasons why you would want to have Apple officially replace your screen instead of a third party, which is stuff like, you know, it's, it's been certified by them. We know what factory it comes from. It's going to be uh, factory calibrated and all this, all of this stuff. Now, another reason the videos are interesting is that there are, there's another one that has like a comparison between the aftermarket screen um, and the official Apple screen shows them next to each other and kind of runs down how they're different. Even for a lay person, it's not super clear when you're looking at the two different screens, if there is much of a difference. So the reason that all of these things, like why does all of this matter? What's the big picture here? You know, talking to right to repair advocates this represents kind of a change in the way Apple's communicating with its business partners about repair. You notice that they're trying to persuade people to get the Apple repair instead of going to the third-party repair shop. Whereas before, we've seen them very much like, they're much harsher. They used to be much harsher. They used to kind of straight up tell people like, 
if you get the screen repaired uh, by a third party, it's not going to work. And in fact, it could be dangerous. The language here is different. There's a softening of tone um, that is kind of that, you know, speculating kind of is a reaction to the different repair legislative environment that we've seen crop up, right? Biden has passed an executive order. There are lots of interesting things happening in Europe around right to repair. There are right to repair bills moving through various uh, state and local legislatures. Um, it's just a different environment. And I think like why these videos matter is that they are Apple reacting to that environment. That's my take on it. On the one hand, you're right. And I think that uh, I kind of disagree with Kyle Weens, which is, um, you know, he's he's the CEO of iFixit and has been a huge right to repair advocate for a really long time, probably the most important one. And he's right about almost everything all the time when we talk to him. But, you know, he said Apple should have been doing this all along where they're kind of fighting on um, like quality, basically. Right. I think that he's right in that, you know, if you're going to get your phone fixed by Apple, like you're 100% getting a quality, genuine screen or genuine camera or whatever you're replacing your thing with. At the same time, there are like Apple has such a power imbalance here where they are able to paint third party repair with a gigantic, really broad brush and say, yeah, like you can go to a third party repair place and it will be less expensive, but you're getting a worse part and uh, it might not work and it might break. And like part of the reason why that is the case sometimes is because Apple makes it very difficult for um, these independent shops to get genuine parts or to get parts that um, that are going to work as well as the Apple first party parts. And so they're kind of competing on quality, but for the most part, they're like sowing doubt and undermining third-party repair. And this is, as we know, it's a, um, it's a playing field that's uneven for a lot of different reasons. And so I think it's pretty insidious that Apple is training its uh, geniuses to say this when people come in and it's training its authorized repair folks to say this when people come in and say, hey, I want to go to the place down the street because there are a lot of third-party repair shops that do use really high-quality parts and that don't charge as much as Apple does, like charge nowhere near as much as Apple does and still make, and will you know give you a warranty and stand behind the repair and all that sort of thing. And so the fact that um, Apple is kind of saying this is, you know, they, it's kind of like they are understanding that there's a threat here, but at the same time, like they're sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt that they are creating because they've made this um, they've made this parts ecosystem that is really hard for a lot of independent shops. Yeah, absolutely. They've created a toxic environment, right? And now they are changing their tactics a little bit as they see the regulatory situation change. But you know, they're they could make everyone's lives a lot easier and cheaper, and they kind of choose not to. Yeah. So, well, they don't kind of choose not to; they choose not to. Period. Jason Kebler, Editor-in-Chief of Motherboard, thank you for coming on to Cypher and walking us through all of this. Yeah, of course. Um, where can people find us? Anywhere well, anywhere podcasts are, are casted as, as well as Twitch now. Yep, we are going to be streaming on Twitch at twitch.com forward slash motherboard TV. 
more cyber there in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, baby. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.